0: Hi, I'm Laura, and this is Uncatalogued.
1: My feelings will not be repressed. You must allow me to tell you how ardently I admire and love
2: you. Here you go, Ralph. You choo-choo-choose me? Happy Valentine's. Ah, love. L-O-V-E, love. L is for life. And what is life without love? O
0: is for... Oh, wow! (laughs) Welcome to episode two of Uncatalogued, the podcast where we go behind the scenes and meet some jolly nice people who work in our cultural institutions. So, it's February, and in February we celebrate LGBT History Month, and we feel lucky... Or, as the case may be, unlucky, in love. Those are our themes this time. Along the way, you'll discover where the best place to hide from a royal wedding might be. Uh, You'll find out where you can take all those unwanted homemade Valentine's Day cards and any other trinkets from ex-boyfriends and girlfriends that you may be harbouring. And you'll also be introduced to the hottest, newest comic book character, Forget Spider-Man, it's Quiffy Quiltbag. So when I chose the themes for this episode, what I really wanted to do was find a couple who had met in a cultural institution perhaps brushed past each other in the library bookshelves or their eyes had met over conserving an 18th century pot um, or something. And I also obviously wanted to interview someone about LGBTQ history and you know what that means in a museum context. And in a happy coincidence, I've managed to kill two birds with one stone. And my first interview is with Dawn and Zorian. They're both assistant curators at the v and they are also the co-chairs of the VNA's LGBTQ working group. We'll get on to that a bit more in a minute but firstly I just asked them both how they ended up here.
1: Well, I guess that I kind of ended up here because I studied fine arts for my BA and then I became slightly disillusioned with contemporary art um, and I ended up working in libraries and doing a master's in art museum and gallery studies, and I actually moved to London to start a job at the Imperial War Museum, um, which was looking uh, through their records and cataloguing systems, which was actually really quite interesting. I learned a lot more about makes of Tank and various ships (laughs) that I can't remember now, so I don't want to say too much (laughs) in case I get all the terminology wrong. Um,
2: Before joining the museum I was with a sort of radical art collective and we squatted big buildings all over London to do exhibitions and cabaret clubs and events and so um, yeah we did that and before that I uh, lived in Paris for five years and I was working in documentary films for TV and uh, in publishing. And then before that I was in Manchester and one of the most boring jobs I ever had was uh, in the medical records department in the basement of the uh, largest hospital in Manchester. And I didn't really think, I thought at the time, like I did a history of art degree and thought, you know, this is, what am I doing here kind of thing. But that kind of came around to be really useful, dealing with like a million paper records and archives and stuff. It just happened to be about uh, diseases and bits of bodies and things that were unpleasant, but it turned out to be very useful. Um, I wanted to work in film, but that's probably even more difficult. Than I wanted to make my own films, but I didn't have any money or equipment. I, what I had. I still have plans. I think one day to make films. Should I ever have the equipment and the time? Same. So <laughs> you know, it's not like a given up dream, but it's just on the back burner. I suppose. Yes.
1: Yeah. I think as well. It's realizing that even if you're getting, you've got a job and a, like having a career in one area, you can still have your interests outside of it, yeah. keep those up and they might turn into something else mm. in the future. So yeah, I don't feel like I've completely cut off all the other things that i Yeah. interested in just to become a museum. <laughs> we wanted to <laughs> so,
2: make a com- We wanted to make comic books as yeah. well, like drag queen superheroes, that's the plan. Yeah, <laughs> if I make up the story and do, and do the drawing, perhaps we could yeah. be, uh, yeah, Set brilliant in
1: well, well. We, we did also, yeah, we were thinking museum-based uh, behind-the-scenes comics and then we were wondering what, what stories you could get away with and if this <laughs> is for maybe something that should be shelved for when, I don't know, you're retired or have moved yeah. on somewhere. <laughs> well, yeah. thinking like
2: Americans, the Harvey P. Carr, American Splendor ones, this was set in his library archive sort of office where he worked. So sort of, you know, the idea of that but then having a sort of a... We had a queer character called Quiffy Quiltbag who we'll would be their kind <laughs> of uh, adventures through the museum. So now that we've said it, we're going to have to do it. Mm. Which is, yeah. I was going to say, that, being, like, really excited. I'm really excited this. You heard it here <laughs> first. <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: that was cool. Um, and you guys are a couple. Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, and did you meet here?
2: No, we met, but through, we met as part of a climate change uh, organisation, uh, activist organisation that was inspired by the suffragettes, and uh, there was another member of staff from Weird, from Word and Image, who, who we came lo- yeah, with. Yeah, we both
1: went along to a meeting, um, me and this other person in the museum, and then
2: And then I came along, and, and we were, were friends you. for about six months, and then Dawn was getting promoted, so I got the heads up that there was this catalogue job There going. was no nepotism. There was no yeah. nepotism. I had to interview with other people. Dawn was not, but, you know, I had to interview with other heads of the thing that had never met me. It was all fair. And uh, amazingly, I got it. Dawn went, and I was, then, you know, in Dawn's old role. And, uh, yeah, we got together on the history, on the day that there was the... History Month at the end of February, five years ago.
1: 2011.
2: And Dawn was giving a talk on Victorian lady cyclists.
1: Yeah, riding astride the Freedom Machine. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I remember it was because I I offered to do the talk because someone else dropped out. And I'd never given any kind of talk in the museum before. I was just a lowly cataloger at that point. Um, but I thought if I'm going to do anything, it'll be for like an LGBT History Month thing. And I just remember three days beforehand cramming. And then I gave the talk, lots of people came, um, I just couldn't tell if it had gone well or not at oh, all. It was good. I remember <laughs> I mean, that post was very <laughs> really about feeling It did go well. Oh, I I someone was impressed.
2: Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and then you happened to be having a house party that yeah. night, your famous fancy dress parties that you used to have at your yeah. house. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and so that's the only way. I never remember anniversaries, but because we now are the co chairs of History Month and we do. History Month events on the same on the last Saturday of every month, so there's one coming up on the twenty seventh of February this month. That's our yeah. anniversary, so it's, kind it's always of a day like that cheesy, slightly stressful. Yeah,
1: doing a awesome. lecture, <laughs> yeah. And
2: but yeah, we'll you know have a celebratory tea out after we've done our History Month uh, yeah. stuff or something. I don't know, don't know what we'll do, but it'll be fun. <laughs> <really funny.
0: laughs> That's nice, isn't it? Before I get too softly, happy anniversary, firstly. And secondly, it brings us on quite nicely to talking about the LGBTQ working group at the v I asked Dawn and Zorian about how it got started, and it turns out that it started a little bit before they both got involved.
1: From going back through the records, um, I think it was 2006 when they first were kind of pitching or prodding and pushing for there to be a group of some kind. But then um yeah, I think it was quite a tentative thing, so it's quite a new thing for museums to have. Um
2: ten years ago, yeah.
1: So I think it was trying to find out how it would fit into the museum overall and getting people on board and understanding what what the group would do or why they felt there was a need for it. But um We took full advantage of the group not quite being semi-official so that we were able to do things but we could kind of get under the radar and make things happen a bit quicker than might usually happen in the museum. So we've become a bit more established and official in terms of like museum hierarchies and organisation. So um, yeah, we're not so kind of fly by the seat of your pants Mm. on things but um, we still get a lot done.
2: And one of our... (laughs) Proud, proudest things I suppose in like a legacy way we got 29 terms put into the collections management system so people can tag objects with all kinds of terms so from AIDS to queer it was, it went through from <laughs> uh, nothing went beyond Q in the alphabet of the thing but we had all trans terminology and there wasn't even gay and lesbian in there before there was a thing, my favourite story is the thing about the lesbian cornice Uh, there's a type of cornice which is called a lesbian cornice which is two smooth sides that meet and that was what came up if you tried to tag something as a lesbian object so there still is lesbian cornice in the system so if anyone is cataloguing (laughs) make sure you tag the right kind of lesbian Um, but yeah we've got trans man and trans woman and safer sex and uh, androgyny and all kinds of uh, terminology in there now, and about 800 objects so far that are under the gender and sexuality catalogue heading. But yeah, homoerotic was the seventh most searched thing on v site in July 2015 which is amazing. It was bigger than yeah. Jesus. Um, it was <laughs> not as well. Mo- mo- there was sepulchral ornaments. So I think it was number three. Frankfurt was in there. Flowers, Jesus and homoerotic. So um, there's some fantastic stuff should you search it. Some lovely uh, theatre and performance drawings of like Roman centurion costume with tiny pants and... You know, great. hard buns. Yeah. It's
0: great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So not only can you do that online, which I'm really hoping that you will do, you can also online download um, a physical trail where you can actually go around the museum and the group have curated a special tour um, of all the different objects that relate to LGBTQ themes.
1: They're not things that shy away from being noticed in the cases Um.
2: And then we look at, you know, um, figures from the ancient world like Ganymede and Antinous and these kinds of uh, figures that you might find down in the Sculpture Gallery and then queer collectors like, well, uh, William Beckford and Horace Walpole and people like that who was called the Great Finger Twirler was uh, the 18th (laughs) century way of saying that Horace Walpole was a little bit camp. So there's stories that we'll sort of bring out or we'll put a little bio in the record so you might not always be saying like this is a gay object but you can say that this person had connections with or wasn't, people like Cecil Beaton we've got tons of his stuff Um, so and some of those are very very kind of camp and queer and they're all his sort of coterie of fabulous 1930s kind of party people Mm -hmm. you know so um, yeah so it's Very, very broad. We also just found about a hundred kind of muscle man, beefcake photographs that were supposedly (laughs) for life drawing purposes. But they're just like, you know, physique magazine kind of uh, (laughs) things that were like essentially gay magazines from the 50s that were in a box at Blythe, and we just uh, photographed those and put them up. So that's what I shall finish tagging today. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so every time people check back, there'll be more stuff. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I went on to ask them both what their favourite object on the trail is.
2: Um, well, the thing that we used for the cover of the out-on-display thing is the Charles James dress that Dawn mentioned, and just within this one dress, like, Charles James was this fantastically camp couturier um, who Uh, Design this dress and in it are the faces of Jean Cocteau and his lover and muse Jean Marais and then um, uh, so all three of them moved as we say in the book all all three of them moved in the same cosmopolitan tolerant and sexually liberated artistic circles of the time and the gown was donated by Cecil Beaton so within one dress there's uh, four like fantastic queer people that perhaps they you know perhaps there's a lot of people that haven't heard of all of them and then they can go and discover you know about their lives and things so
0: so finally rather than pry any more into their personal relationship i asked dawn and zorian about how they feel that lgbtq history and culture is represented and tackled by museums there's been a
2: huge shift i think in the last five years yeah. and with 2017 coming up there's every well most of the large museums are noting it with either a, a a large exhibition or display or conferences and things and everybody seems to be coming round to having proper terminology put in and yeah all this kind i of thing.
1: i think with um with the majority of museums because you're working with historical like historic collections historic um kind of systems that the museum like the whole museum is historic in its setup. So say here, you it's a nineteenth century place. Um that is constantly evolving, but in such a big place it can be quite slow. I think um Oliver Winchester once described it as a bit like a coral. It's very beautiful and there's lots happening but it moves quite slowly <laughs> at times. Um which I, I think is probably the same for a lot of places. So Yeah, as Orien said, there's lots of, in the past few years, there's been a lot of change and a lot of um, kind of enthusiasm and movement to more kind of inclusive generally, not just in terms of LGBTQ audiences and content. um, And I think
2: it's like an avalanche, really, when one museum really starts doing a lot of stuff, Mm -hmm. then other ones are going to go hang on. Like, I think even very traditional seeming institutions like English Heritage and Mm The National Trust are doing big projects now to, you know, do LGBTQ mapping and bringing out those kind of queer histories from in their historic properties and Mm -hmm. stuff. And, you know, it's just really a great time, I think, for finally sort of catching up and, you know, finally really putting that content back into Mm -hmm. places. And the museum was set up with socialist principles. It was not set up as some kind of imperial Queen Victoria loving endeavour. It was uh, a a museum of art and design for all and one of the first ones to be open for free to everyone and you know people I think don't always realise that about the V&A but it is true.
1: I think one of my favourite quotes that I keep using is that Henry Cole, the founder of um, what was the South Kensington Museum he. He, he apparently said that he envisaged the museum as being like a book with its pages always open and not shut, which I think is kind of quite a nice um, thought for how we should be kind of considering the collections and the activities that go on here, that it is a constantly kind of a growing and evolving place.
2: Mm. Nicely said. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Plush Snoopy, 30 years, Netherlands. He gave Snoopy to me on my 17th birthday. We had fallen in love six months earlier, on October the 5th, 1981. 30 years down the line, we had three sons, a house. He fell in love with another woman, and he chose her. He broke my heart, telling me that he hadn't really loved me in those 30 years. I just don't understand. Snoopy, and Snoopy's story, is one of hundreds of objects in the Museum of Breaking Relationships. Set up ten years ago in Zagreb, Croatia, it toured to London a few years ago, and I remember thinking, what a brilliant idea. So affecting, so interesting. I was lucky enough to get a little interview with one of the founding creators.
3: My name is Dražen Grubšić. I'm an artist uh, coming from... Zagreb, Croatia. It was just an idea coming from a pretty personal experience since at the time uh, Olinka Vistica, who's a co-founder, and I, uh, we were breaking up. And uh, while in the, in the process of it, we were discussing what to do with uh, all the objects that are left behind uh, the objects that we had uh, the objects that were present uh, kind of tokens of love and what will their life going to be now after our relationship is over and somehow this idea of wouldn't it be great if there was a place where you can just put them away so kind of to preserve them and but at the same time to move them away from you because they're reminders of something that's broken now Uh, that idea came to mind and, and we thought well it might as well work as an art project so we just wrote it down put it on a piece of paper not to forget it but I was certain that This already exists somewhere. So we sat down, and I think I Googled for a couple of days and I couldn't find anything. But on the contrary, what I did find was so many advice on moving on uh, in a way, uh, advising you to get all the things and, if possible, burn them. Ritually, or at least throw them away in uh, trash and forget and so on, and for me and for rank as well they seems that that seems really a terrible thing to do, just because something didn't work out. it doesn't mean that i mean in our opinion, it doesn't mean that you're supposed to just destroy all the signs of of its existence ever uh If you were in a relationship uh, lasting four or five years, as we were, um, it meant that a lot of that time was really great time. And uh, if it didn't work out, it doesn't mean it should be forgotten. I mean, we are people who we are because of all the interactions that we had in our life. I mean, starting from our parents and grandparents, in our early life and then people who we meet and who we hang out with and of course a lot of it I think has to do with our partners so why would you want to destroy all the memories of that just because of this short moment of of anger or uh, disillusion or whatever.
0: Two years after breaking up and coming up with the idea, there was a chance for them both to enter Zagreb Salon, which is a Biennale show. In just two weeks, they got together 42 objects and stories, mostly from their friends, and it was a huge success. They started a tour, and when touring, they would ask local people for their objects and stories. Here's one of my favourite ones from London. Jeff and Caroline's wedding album. 1995-2005, London. This is an album of our wedding, which took place on Saturday, April 19th, 1997. The finished photographs hopefully capture not just the formality, but the great joy that we both felt on the day. We had an extremely amicable breakup in August 2005. To this day, we remain great friends, and we speak on the phone several times a week. This wedding album itself lay almost forgotten underneath an occasional table in my sitting room. I say almost forgotten, because my rather nervous ginger cat Charlie likes to sit on it underneath the table when he is feeling particularly scared, for example during the bonfire night fireworks.
3: It's on two levels. Uh, you as a visitor, you get reminded of your relationships in your life, and you as a donor get a chance to kind of transform the pain or the lost love and to it, it becomes something else it becomes a story that you share with everybody of course everything is anonymous it's a really really important our project is uh... very much straightforward it's inclusive it's uh... something that I think almost everybody on the planet can relate to, and I think that is the the main reason why it's successful. Uh, all you need to know is to read, and the rest will come. Uh, we, we as people, we have this uh, ability to empathize, and. Uh, when you go through all of these stories, I'm sure some of them will strike a chord and it they will make you think. And I think that's, that's the best part that you can do to have... A, when you go out of the exhibition, you'll be thinking about it, about yourself, about your friends, about your exes or... Maybe about your parents. It depends, and it's it's nice to see that. I mean, there always are some of the objects that uh, are kind of uh, most photographed or most most talked about. But when you ask uh, different people when they get out of the, when they get out of the exhibition, what object, uh, what story, you know, touched them the most, uh, you will mostly get different answers because we're all so different and we respond differently to different stories I think that's the the basic uh, reason why the museum is such a success
0: A caterpillar Tumunaki almost two years Sarajevo I had this big truly big love a long-distance relationship Sarajevo to Zagreb It lasted for 20 months. Of course, we dreamt of a life together, and with that in mind, I brought this huge caterpillar. Every time we would see each other, we would tear one leg off. When we ran out of legs, that would be the time to start a life together. But, as is often the case with great loves, the relationship broke, and so the caterpillar did not become a complete invalid
3: after all. Well, since we've been stuck with this, Stuck with this project for ten years, there have been so many different stories and different situations, and it really is, you know, that that fiction can be can never be so uh, crazy as as reality. We had once a situation. Uh, we had the exhibition in Maribor in Slovenia, and. Uh, one old lady she was 80s 83 or 84 I think she came over and said that she would like to donate her story from the Second World War but she didn't want to leave us the the object the, the photos and the letters so we asked if we can make a short video of her and so we did this little video and you can while she's talking you can see the photos and the letters and it's an amazing story as well. And uh, a couple of years later, a young guy, a young couple actually, came out of the exhibition and they wanted to find out if they could get the address of the old lady. And I said, um, well, uh, of course not because, you know, it's that's not the idea. And I said, why would you want to know that and the guy said well you know it's kind of strange but on on these photos that you can see that's actually my grandfather so then uh, we contacted her told about the story and it was so funny because then she wasn't sure if maybe it's a trick or something, the guy wants to trick her. So she sent him a list of questions, like five questions that only a real uh, grandson would know. And then when he answered them, then she they, they made contact. And I think now he's doing a documentary about it. Uh, there's also been a lot of funny stories while we travel. In Cape Town we almost missed the plane because the customs officer had the urge to tell us his life story after seeing uh, the, the objects and what this museum was about. And it was really funny because Olinka was waiting and I was running you know, after have, have check-in. Check she's like, what happened, what happened? I'm like, well, I'm sorry, you know, I had to listen to this guy for 25 minutes telling me his life story. About his wife and what happened and so on. So you, you, you—it you, it strikes a chord in people. You get people to tell you to open up and to tell you really the, the most amazing private things that you'd expect. A
0: mobile phone, July twelfth, two thousand three. April 14th 2004, Croatia. It was 300 days too long, he gave me his mobile phone so I couldn't call him anymore. The Museum of Broken Relationships is a great example of why I love museums and think they're great. Which brings me on to my last interview. You may have heard of the I Love Museums campaign. It's on social media, especially on Twitter. I went to interview the lovely Katie to find out more.
4: My name's Katie Childs and I am the Policy and Projects Manager
0: at the National Museum Directors Council, which is at NMDC for short. Katie came from working at the British Museum and she started off volunteering in Bolton Museum. And if you listen to last month's episode, you'll realise why that's quite ironic and you'll agree that we all need to go to Bolton. But back to the National Museum Directors' Council. It was founded in 1929 because the government wanted museums to work closer together and directors from all the national and regional museums sit on it.
4: Well, yeah, when we were moving, we found some uh some of our old documents um and it was but it was from the the, the di- then director of of Q saying uh please can you ask tell us where you whether you were attending the NMDC meeting and whether ladies will be present because I think then it was more of a, a sort of gentleman's dining group <laughs> there's better gender balance uh, looking at the non national museums mm-hmm. but um I mean uh, just a cursory kind of look at the statistics just yeah. shows Diane is the only female director of a DCMS sponsored national museum and then two of the three service national service museums sponsored by the MOD are directed by women, so the army and the RAF. It's a, it is a different story when you look at, at non-national museums, it's, it's certainly not balanced but it's a different story. Mm. Um, I think there's a big research project somewhere. <laughs>
0: more on that topic in our next episode which is for International Women's Day but for now back to the campaign.
4: We specifically made the campaign positive because Mm -hmm. we're quite a positive sector and um, we know that certainly thinking about it politically, politicians do respond to to kind of positive can-do pragmatic um, services and that's what we are and that's certainly the the, the image that we wanted to portray. Mm um and we wanted to make it sort of broad enough that museums can find their own place in it as well. We were quite surprised how little visitors were aware of how museums were funded that 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 funding might not exist in the same way that it might be reduced. Um and that we were sort of pleasantly surprised how many people were, were were kind of very happy to say Um, that they love museums, that they want the nationals to remain free, that sort of stuff. Um, So that's, but I think there's there's quite a lot we can can do as a whole sector in terms of improving our advocacy skills and part of that is is starting with talking to visitors read it down the list, the, fact the the kind of breadth of reasons that people love museums is, is baffling. I mean some people have said they like cake in the cafe, but they do also like of paintings and stuff like that, but if you get people into your museum because you've got a good cafe and they go, oh it's a nice place for a brew, nice place for a cup of tea, and then they hang around for 20 minutes and they look around the gallery, is that a problem? I don't think that's a problem. I don't so. think that's a
0: problem at all. Um, no. I just went on, on the way, I just went to the loo in the imperial war museum (laughs) Um, and they're i've got to say brilliant Um, but there's there's loads of them that i really enjoyed (laughs) that Um. apart from the all-important cake and toilets katie and her team have been collecting hundreds of real life reasons why people love museums here are my two very good friends julia and adrian reading out some of the reasons so you can get a flavor what people have been saying.
4: I love museums because where else can you do colouring on a Sunday?
0: Our humanity is rooted in the rich soil of our past. We can't be human
2: without it.
4: I like the giraffe.
2: They expand the mind, nourish the soul, and make life more fun.
4: In times where everything around me has soured, museums offer an opportunity for inspiration where those before us have allowed us to dream.
1: History is good.
4: They are the storybooks of our cultural past, and I am an avid and captivated reader.
2: Where else can you see a fossilised poo and a 1970s microwave?
0: On that subject, I ask Katie why she loves museums. The, the
4: kind of infinite possibilities of museums. I love the collections, I love the breadth of collections, I love the fact that um, they, we wrote in Museums Matter that they serve a public past, public... Present and a public yet to be born. And no other institution does that. There's no other institution where you can go and explore your, the, the place where you live, the past of the place where you live, where you can use that to inform kind of thinking about the future of it. I love it when you open, even here at the Imperial War Museum, where they, you know, it's big military kits and you kind of open the doors and kids are like, oh my, wow, what's that? And, and start asking questions. Um, there's nowhere else really where you open the door and immediately people can ask questions and and sort of start to think about things in this way because unless you sit and do that on your own with a book, I can't I can't think of other another place where that's possible. I, and, and certainly, it's not just staff expertise but kind of volunteers' expertise as well. Mm. Because certainly, uh, once you get to to kind of smaller and medium-sized museums, actually, somebody who has devoted so much time to uh, looking at, uh, you know, I don't know, vintage vehicles or planes yeah. or something like that. I th- I think there's something wonderful in that. The person is sort of an, an expert in a certain sort of train or something like that. So that's brilliant. And the fact that this, you know, there's a real purpose and use for that kind of knowledge. Okay. When I was at the British Museum, I, um, there, it's some fantastic curators there. Um, a wonderful curator called Irving Finkel, who is in the Department of. Uh, Middle East, the Middle East department, um, and a curator who can read cuneiform script. There's only eight people, about eight people in the world who can do that. That's inc- it's, in- it's incredible knowledge, but it's also really important when you kind of think about it in a world context.
0: Which is what Uncatalog is all about. It's not just staff, of course. It's volunteers as well, as Katie said, and she has a brilliant story on that subject.
4: Um, we were just kind of chatting to people as they came in. Um, and apart from meeting a woman dressed up as a prehistoric jellyfish in Yorkshire Museum, which was at the end of the week and it's that time you get quite tired and you're like I, th- I think this is happening, but I'm not entirely sure <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> this, is, oh, this is a weird thing, isn't it? that's, a di- um, that's different I've got a brilliant picture of her, which, you, which you're very welcome to oh, have. I'd love um, to, yeah it's, it's on our Twitter feed, but I can send it uh, to you it's, like, it's, it's brilliant, <laughs> and she, she's a wonderful woman, she volunteers um, to be a to, She made fish. the costume because the, the, they'd run a competition for kids in the area and they had to design a sort of creature based on the collection. So it's all got quite a good intellectual basis. Mm. And then she was asked if she, she could, so, I don't know if that's her job, um, if she could make the costume. And so she made it to kind of fit her because she, for the want of anybody else to make yeah. it for. <laughs> um, and now she volunteers if she's free during the school holidays to dress, and she sort she just walks around. I asked her if she'd take a picture, if I could take a picture next to, we had this one of these I Love Museum banners up, and uh, she still stayed in character, which was very, very disconcerting, given I've been chatting to her earlier in the day when I thought she was just a visitor.
0: The, the character of a prehistoric jellyfish. Prehistoric hmm. jellyfish, yes, they, they don't. Um... <laughs> At the start of the episode, I promised you a tip about where to hide from royal weddings. And this is a real life quote, that Katie's going to read out to you. And this is one of my favourites.
4: Apart from being a great place to hide during royal weddings, I've been in Manchester Museum for all of them since Princess Anne. Where else can you archive the past for future generations? (laughs)
0: <laughs> what, what, what's this lady you got against for a wedding
4: I'm sure it was in Manchester Museum's marketing that you <laughs> no, can, no. that you can remain immune from a royal wedding <laughs> you
0: know there's um, lots of different reasons why people go to these it, and that they're all just as valid as <laughs> yes, each other exactly. um, that's, that's a great one um, thank you so much I think that was really good. on that note it's the end of the episode thank you so much for listening we'll be back on the 8th of March which is International Women's Day and I'll be interviewing some amazing women the Beyonce's if you will of our cultural institutions thank you so much to everyone who's contributed to this episode thank you so much for your time thank you to Jack Westmore again for the brilliant music and thank you for listening i'm going to leave you with Katie's favorite quote from the I Love Museums campaign. And I think possibly just the best thing that I have ever heard anyone say about museums. Enjoy.
4: Um, My kids are autistic, and if it wasn't for the local museums, their childhood would have been a lot less fun. They found an environment they felt comfortable in, that they understood, that was consistent and didn't change. And they could ask questions about and get answers from people that didn't dismiss them as being too intrusive or nosy. Museums are an autistic person's dream, and now my son is grown up, he works in one. He made me cry recently by saying he wished he had a time machine to go back to his five-year-old self, who had no friends, feeling lost and left out, but playing happily in the museum in Newcastle, and say to him, it's okay, one day you'll work
3: here.